Nothing personal word of the day. It's a mailbag episode. Thank you very much for taking the time to engage with us while I'm engaging with my son as he is working out of the country this summer. It doesn't mean that we're not going to have something for you just about every day I'm gone. Mailbag is when you come to us with questions. For those of you new to the show, you can get me at David P. Sampson on Twitter, Instagram, same thing. TikTok, nothingpersonal.npds. I can't remember, Coke if we're on Twitch or Stitch or whatever it is, but find us. Ask me a question. Mailbags, I'm going to answer. And you know how nothing personal is. You're going to get the entire answer from me. Let's get right to it. I love the theme of today's questions. Hey, David. Love the show. Thank you. Love the insight. Thank you. Love your honest views and ways you can be vulnerable in your feelings and the thoughts you portray. We actually work. There's no question there. We do work very hard to give you a peek behind the curtain. Nothing personal was developed in order to give you an understanding of what it means to run a team, what it means to be in the room where decisions are being made about the teams that you love so much what it means to run a business where the product is both players and emotion. I'm a Montreal Expos fan. Uh Uh-oh. Why would that make the mailbag? This better get better. I lived in California all my life, but loved the Expos when I turned seven because of Pedro and Larry. Here comes the question. I don't blame you for the team moving because the nail in the coffin had already been struck and local owners had already done their best to ruin the fan base. My question is, are there any top five moments you can talk about with your time in Montreal? I appreciate that. I've talked a bit about Montreal before, but don't worry, you don't have to go to the archives. I'm gonna give you a few things straight right now. Number one, The only reason I became executive vice president of the Montreal Expos is that there's a man named Jeffrey Loria who was married to my mother who said, hey, I'm buying a team. Can you help me? And once we buy it, are you willing to run it? I was working on Wall Street at the time at a firm called Morgan Stanley. I'd run a business in Europe. I was a lawyer. And I was doing just fine. Very happy. I was very happy to work on the deal to help him acquire the Montreal Expos. No idea where it would lead to. An 18-year career that followed. Divorces, both the owners and mine. Various other things that have happened. And then the relationship with Coca, which started for real in October of 2019 with nothing personal. But do you know why Jeffrey Loria was allowed to buy the Montreal Expos? Because not one person in Montreal was willing. Not one. I went with Jeffrey Loria to visit with Bud Selig 
prior to a deal being done to buy the general partner share from a man named Claude Brashew. Bud Selig wanted no part of an American buying the Montreal Expos. Bud Selig had a friendship with Charles Bronfman. Charles Bronfman was one of the original owners of the Montreal Expos. Charles Bronfman's son, Stephen, was involved in our offer to buy the general partner shares from Claude Brochu. Bud Selig plainly stated, Jeffrey, you really want to do this? We couldn't get one of these businessmen in Montreal to invest $12 million. We couldn't get one. It's so bad up there. Your chance of moving, Jeffrey, zero. Your chance of getting a stadium, no one's been able to do it. Olympic Stadium is a dump. Currency conversion is a nightmare. Your revenue is in Canadian dollars. Your expenses are in U.S. dollars, player payroll. You got to do everything in two languages. We can't find a solution in Montreal. You say you want to buy a team. Here you go. We're going to give you a shit burger for your entry into Major League Baseball. We leave the meeting. Jeffrey says to me, David, what are your thoughts? I'll never forget where we were. We were standing under the awning, which is a hard awning, of a hotel on Park Avenue in the 50s in New York City. I believe it was called the Regency, but I'd have to check that, Coca. We're standing there after the meeting, and for the first time, Jeffrey Loria looked at me and said, are we doing the right thing? Can we make this work? I looked at him at 31 years old and I said, you got this. It's going to be great. What could possibly go wrong? Finish the negotiations. Head up to Montreal. Check into La Reine. Elizabeth, the Queen Elizabeth Hotel in preparation for an introductory press conference. In the meantime, there had been tremendous fighting internally between the existing partners of the Expos and me and Jeffrey. The fighting was over the legal documents, over the purchase. Claude Brochu was very unpopular in Montreal. He was the face of the team, blamed for all that was wrong. The strike in 1994 crushed the Expos. They were doing very well on the field. And people to this day view the 1994 strike as the beginning of the end for baseball in Montreal. Here's a little side note. There was plenty of time post the strike to fall back in love with the game. And you never would have heard of me or Jeffrey Loria. The only reason we are there 
is not one of the people in Montreal. Not one. Name them. Pierre Michaud, name him. Jacques Menard, name him. Jean Coutu, name him. Stephen Bronfman, I'll name them all. Not one of them wanted to put in $10 million, $12 million, and say, I'll be the face of the franchise. They didn't want to be the face of a franchise that failed in Montreal. They wanted someone else to blame. They wanted someone else to blame when they would lose their team because they could not get a financing package for a stadium. They could not get a broadcast deal. They could not get season ticket holders. They could not get corporate sponsors. From the beginning, the only way that we thought it could work in Montreal was with the new stadium. And I traveled around the United States with Vianney Belanger. If you're still alive, why wouldn't you be? My architect of choice. going around, figuring out how we can get a stadium done, what the cost will be, how we're going to finance it, both privately and publicly, trying to put a deal together, a deal that no one else had been able to put together. Nobody. MLB had said to us from the beginning, if you can get a stadium deal done and we approve it, you're good. If you can't get a stadium deal done, good luck. You could get contracted, but you're not relocating. The reason why Jeffrey Loria was not allowed to relocate the Montreal Expos to Washington, D.C. is that the owners did not want to give Jeffrey Loria the benefit of the increase in valuation of his team having been new into ownership ranks, hadn't paid his dues. It's not that this was hidden from us. We were told from the beginning, don't come knocking on our door at 270 Park Avenue because talk to the hand. You better start parlaying some Francais and see what you can get done. It's like setting two people into a battle with a knife, knowing that the other side is being financed by the U.S. government. No chance toilet pants. That was our likelihood of success. I went to meeting after meeting, trying to figure out what we could do in Montreal. Turned away left and right. Jeffrey was not going to write checks above and beyond what he wanted to write, what he needed to write to try to get the team better. We had Vladimir Guerrero. We had Orlando Cabrera. We had Jose Vidro, Javier Vasquez. Go back. We had an interesting team. We couldn't win 70 games. Was Graham Lloyd a bad free agent signing? Not to me. Three million a year for three years at that time for an eighth inning guy made sense. We had Ugi Urbina. Was he good enough? Helped win a World Series. Three years later, I just put up the four sign, Coca, four eight sixty nine. He helped win a, win a World Series. Oh, no, it is four. Wait a minute. Oh, 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 one, oh, two, oh, three. Four seasons after our first season in Montreal. Spoiler alert. We were World Series champions in Miami with a different franchise. It's for another day. Bring in an eighth inning guy. That'll work. Everyone in the media was excited. I'm doing interviews in French. 
living at the Intercontinental Hotel, eating room service on non-game days, off-season, freezing my kishkas off in those Montreal winters. But for whatever reason, was it I wasn't smart enough? People have said that. I was too cocky, diminutive, cocksure. I just couldn't do what everybody else couldn't do. What's the crime of that? I was the captain of the Titanic who was named captain after the first guy said, I hit an iceberg, see you later, and jumped on a lifeboat on his own and bailed. That's the equivalent. What am I supposed to do? We're taking on water. Can you name 10 things that I could have done better? Hell yeah. Would any of those things in concert have made any difference to the outcome of the Expos moving to Washington? No. Jeffrey Lurie was never gonna be allowed to move the Expos to Washington, ever. Their plan all along. You're not gonna succeed, Jeffrey. We're taking the team. Have fun. Enjoy your couple years. You had a nice run. We're taking the team and we're moving it to Washington. Call it the Washington Nationals. We're gonna get a local big time buyer. We're gonna get hundreds of millions of dollars for the franchise, a fully publicly financed building in the nation's capital and return baseball where they lost it with the Washington Senators so many decades ago. It's a perfect plan. Until I stood up one day with Jeffrey Loria's permission Never would do this again. Did it one time in the middle of an owner's meeting. <laughs> Stood up and said, we will not be contracted. Sit your ass down, Bob DuPay said to me, the president of baseball. I was very young. I was 32 years old. Can you imagine a 32-year-old standing up at an owner's meeting with George Starmenter sitting there? We will not be denied our constitutional right to stay in baseball. Who the hell did I think I was? Guess what? We immediately started meetings in what became the most famous transaction in the history of sports. A franchise swap, never been heard of before, never been heard of since, devised and developed by one lawyer at Proskauer named Wayne Katz, one team executive named David Sampson, one vice chairman named Joel Mail, one owner named Jeffrey Loria, who approached Bud Selig and said, we're not going anywhere. We're ready to buy a different team. Bud Selig told Bob DuPay, sit down and see if you can get a deal done. I'm going back and forth from Montreal to New York, where my family still lived at the time, trying to figure out a way to sell the Expos to Major League Baseball. That's a full negotiation buy the Marlins from John Henry, that's a full negotiation, and have John Henry buy the Red Sox, that's a full negotiation. One of the top five moments from living in Montreal, I loved Montreal, make no mistake. The city of Montreal, great food, great culture, terrible winter weather, phenomenal summer weather, except for those bugs that get on your car. They would always hit my car as I was traveling from the Intercontinental 
right toward Pinuf and Lestat Olympique. I will never forget opening day in Montreal in April of 2000 when so many tens of thousands of people from Montreal came out. That was the original reverse boycott. The original, hey, we're all here. Look at how good Montreal is as a baseball city. Look at the history of Jerry Park and Jackie Robinson. And it is, is you're inundated with the pride of Les Expos de Montréal. I loved it. I was all in. Everyone shows up. And all I kept saying to our sales staff was, why aren't these people coming back the next day? How do we get them to come back for 10 games instead of one? How do we sell more season tickets? Increase the payroll? Tried that. There are teams that draw that don't have great teams or winning teams, but the Expos had just won five years earlier. They were the best team in baseball. Yes, an old owner did a fire sale. Remember, back at that time, I was not aware that previous fire sales would be held against me currently. Wayne Heisinga did fire sales. That was my fault when I was the president of the Marlins. John Henry promised that he would build a stadium privately in Florida. He didn't. When I said we're going for public money, I look like an A-Rod. I don't want to be blamed for stuff I don't do. I want to be blamed for stuff I do do. When I'm there on April 3rd of 2000 and see 51,000 people, I will never forget looking around and saying, I don't know what's next, but God, would it feel good to make it work. I want to win. I remember that feeling. It's 23 years ago. I remember it like it was yesterday because what it meant for me is I didn't just want to beat the Dodgers in the first game, which we didn't. I didn't want to just win the World Series. I wanted to win the entire city of Montreal and I wanted to crush the Blue Jays and take over Canada. I wanted it all. And I thought that we had the roadmap to do it. We needed a deal with the public. That's what we needed. And we tried and tried, even though we were told Americans can't get this deal done. We're not going to do that. We had the most important businessmen in the entire province, and they couldn't get it done. You think you wet behind the ear, 32-year-old? You're going to walk in here and get us to do something that we won't do for our very own brothers? And I said, yeah, why not? Game one, 51,000. But then I remember game two. I looked out, there were like 12,000 people there or something. And in this huge cavernous stadium, it was empty. And what people in Montreal like to do, this sound haunts me. So for all of you Montrealers who want me to be haunted, you win. I don't even know how to imitate it. The clacking of the empty yellow chairs when they get rocked back and forth because there's no tushy in them. And so you rock them back and forth and it bangs on the back of the seat. 
I hear it in my nightmares. I hear it in my dreams. I hear it in French. I dream it in English. That cavernous sound. All you wanted was Simon and Garfunkel. You wanted the sound of silence or you wanted the sound of cheers. And instead I got the sound of clacking. Maybe that's where I got the Vuvenzela promotion from, Coca. That would be something. So those two things I remember well. Let me give you a third. I was out in Montreal because it's a great place to go out. I'm walking down the street. Oh, come on, Coca. What's the uh, St. Catherine Street? And there they are out of nowhere. Scott Strickland and Britt Reams. If you're listening to this show or any of you know Scott Strickland and Britt Reams, Love them. How are you guys? Talented. Big league careers. This was probably 2001, our second season there. I believe we got Britt Reams and Fernando Tatis. Oh, that's Fernando Tatis, the current guy's father. I believe, God, does that make me old? What a memory. I can't remember squat, but I believe that we traded Dustin Hermanson and Steve Klein to the Cardinals for Britt Reams and Fernando Tatis. That's my recollection of a trade. Dustin Hermanson was our opening day starter in 2000. First game I ever was executive vice president of. First ever loss was Hermie. Walking down St. Catherine, number three memory. There they are, two of my players. Guys, how you doing? What are you up to? And they said, nothing. I said, we got a game tomorrow because it was late. They said, we'll be there. We got it. Went to see him the next day. Hey, how we doing? Everything good? And they said, we love Montreal. We don't speak French. They don't speak English. And no one cares. Now, I don't know if they did anything. I don't know whether they were single or married. I have no, no idea. I'm not spilling state secrets. I'm not saying anything nefarious happened at all. I'm saying I remember that moment seeing those players. Number four. Memory of Montreal. <laughs> the snow during baseball season. Opening night of the 2002 season, when I was now with the Marlins, I go back to Montreal because the Marlins are opening against the Expos. And I just remember the snow and thinking, my God, how is this possible? My message to people from Montreal or baseball fans around the country, I love the fact, absolutely love the fact that people are wearing Expos merch again. It's become this retro merch. People send me pictures sometimes that are walking down. Brad Williams, friend of the show, posted something a while back on vacation wearing an Expos hat. I love it. I still have Expos shorts, Expos hat. That's my few Montreal stories. God, I got so many more. I mean, I could go all show, Coca. I mean, I could just talk about what happened, but I'm going to go on to the next one. What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? 
Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Okay. I have loved your shows. Thank you. I do hope there will be more collaborations like the one that you did with Pablo. Well, thank you. There definitely will be. I'm just curious as I love running marathons. Have you ever given a top five marathon list on the show? If not, I would love to hear what they are. Thank you, Jason. Jason, thank you for that. My marathon career started in 1996 on a bet. I was 28 years old. Couldn't run a mile. I was fat, dumb, and full of crap. Someone said, hey, you can't run a marathon by November, the New York City Marathon. I said, yes, I can. Just tell me I can't do something. I dare you. I double dare you. Tell me I can't get it done. I triple dare you. I went to the reservoir and puked before I could finish the 1.6 miles around the reservoir in New York City. Six months later, I finished the New York City Marathon, got hypothermia, was in bed shivering in my old room where I grew up under the covers, fully married at the time with a child. My oldest was one years old, being tended to by my mommy because I thought I was plotting. The sun would come out, the sun would go back. But the memory of the first, I always thought it was overstated, actually. You never forget your first, your first home run, your first game, your first love, your first kiss, your first trip to second base, third base, home plate. It's true. I've run over 25 marathons. I've run ultra marathons. I've done an Ironman climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and run a marathon from the top of that. The first marathon in New York City. Getting into the park. Back then, you got into the park on 100th Street. You went down through the park all the way around. You left the park, went up Central Park South, back into the park on the west, south side of the park. Turn a little left and you see a finish line. I have this perfect memory. I had gotten a training program from Hal Higdon off his a book or something. You had to buy a book back then. And I hadn't missed any. I had not been hurt. And I was ready. But when you're ready for a marathon, it means you've done a 20 and a marathon's 26. You don't know what it's going to feel like for the last six miles, which is more than most people will ever run just the last six miles. Forget doing 26, forget doing 20. I always thought in law school that I was disciplined. 
I thought that the business I was doing over in Europe by myself at that age required me to be smart and disciplined and to have control of my head. I didn't really understand what it meant to have mental and intestinal fortitude until I ran my first marathon. And the reason I say to people to this day that they should run a marathon, one, you don't have to do 20, you don't have to do two. Do one. You're overweight, don't worry. 10% of the people on the marathon course are more overweight than you are. You're out of shape, don't worry. 30% of the people crossing the finish line were more out of shape than you are when they started training. You don't have time? Horse hockey. Everyone has time. You just choose how to allocate your time. Take an hour of sleep away. You can do it. Get yourself out of bed. You can do it. 60% of the people on that course have less time than you do. You want to test yourself? You don't need to do the immaculate grid or wordle. You should do foodle. You want to test yourself. Crossword puzzle, read a book, do a challenge, forget it. Run a marathon. You only have one leg, you're good. You've got this. Bad hips, bad back, don't worry, you've got this. There is no way that one marathon and completing one marathon will do permanent damage to you. Please find enclosed at the end of this show a document that will be sent to your phone, computer, or TV as I ask you to sign a liability waiver in case you drop dead and get pissed off about that. I had to put in the proviso. I've got Coke in my ear. I've got Metal Arc in one ear. I got CBS in one ear. No, no, it's dangerous. It's dangerous. People don't want to do it. Come on. Stand up. Stand up and start today. I put the damn tattoo on my leg. Remember tomorrow. Souvenez-vous demain. Remember tomorrow. How good you'll feel. Crossing the finish line of a marathon will be the biggest accomplishment on or off the court. No, my kids are my biggest accomplishment. Okay. Yes, you had sex. Congratulations. I graduated high school, college, law school. You had opportunity. Lucky, smart, blessed, fine. But the ability to get inside yourself and do it for nobody but you, raise money for charity, please, but do it for nobody but you and go to a place that you did not think possible, you had me at hello. So the New York City Marathon is the number one marathon, my first ever. Number two, a story about a marathon that I had no business running. This is a marathon that I ran in 2012 and I was the only participant. I ran a double marathon from Pompano Beach to Marlins Park. People don't like driving 52.4 miles in a day and I decided I was going to run it. It took over a year of training 
the logistics that were done with my assistant, Beth, my family, because people ran five mile segments with me. We raised hundreds of thousands of dollars for charity in the name of the workers who built Marlins Park. And that was the day. And I'd run marathons after 1996. But that was the day that I realized that I was going to be on an eternal quest to find out when too much is too much. We were in the middle of opening a new stadium in 2011. Last year in the old stadium, a pro player about to get the stadium ready to go. Marlins Park for April 2012. Going back and forth to Miami every day from Broward. Fully having a team to run on top of that. And then training for an ultra marathon on top of that. Where you're going out and doing as part of training a 30 mile run. Knowing that you're screwed. Even when you do 30 miles, you still have 22 left. I had no idea the mental strength that it would take. And when I finished and I had my last IV, because Florida in April, you're going to need an IV if you're going to be on the road for 12 hours, however many hours I was out there. So appreciative for everyone who supported that. I learned a lesson about myself that I thought I wouldn't be able to relearn after 1999 after 1996, excuse me. And I was able to. And the lesson is that there's no failing. You just keep going. No matter how badly you feel about something, keep going. You will find your way to the right path. The only thing that guarantees failure is when you failed and you do the exact same thing again. That's failure. Success is when you failed, you change something, do it again, and you don't fail. I've talked to you so many times about level of comfort and discomfort, how it feels even right now with my tummy. Gurgling as ever. Keep going. Number three, Kilimanjaro. Five days climbing to the summit of Kilimanjaro with a torn hamstring on the assumption that there's no chance I can do something that no one's ever done, which is to run a marathon from the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. In order to do that, spoiler alert, you have to get to the top of Mount Kilimanjaro. You start at midnight the night before after you've been doing it for four straight days, doing more physical exertion with less oxygen than you've ever done ever. Midnight the night before the marathon is the last day, day five, summit day. Normal people, they get to the summit by sunrise. You stay there, you take a photo, you take two days and one night to get down Killy, and then you recuperate for two months. Nope, here's my plan. I'm gonna summit, take two photos, and hell yeah, I'm gonna start a marathon. 
I'm going to go all the way down to the bottom of Kilimanjaro. That's 13.1 miles. Then I'm going to run another 13.1 miles. It'll be a total of an 18-hour day because you got to get to the top first before you can get down and start the damn marathon. Haven't had sleep in days because when you're sleeping with no oxygen, you're not sleeping. When you're in an uncomfortable tent, freezing, dirty, hungry, you got a problem. And what do you do? You keep going. I wanted to quit more times in the Kilimanjaro Marathon than I can possibly tell you. And I remember telling myself, you are not permitted to quit. For the rest of your life, you will be a quitter. You cannot do it. Get it done. Just one step at a time. One little step at a time. It'll become 10, 1,000, 10,000. Keep going. Crossing the finish line of the Kilimanjaro Marathon. The sense of accomplishment dwarfed 96. It dwarfed 2012. Because as I'd gotten older, I was worried that my level of mental discipline would not be backed up by my lack of physical specimenness. Because I am not a physical specimen. I'm a teeny tiny little guy. Although now I've got a bit of a bit of a punch. Gets harder as you get older. You have to do twice as much and eat half as less. And even then, you cheat and have one slice of pizza. Boom. Wow, I got a hanger. Don't want that. Such an ego. And then you become comfortable with your body, which I've never been comfortable with. So then you have dysmorphia. But if you're comfortable, then it just gets worse because, hey, I feel good about this. I'll have one more slice. And then you feel like you have to run or work out or do something in order to make up for the fact that you're doing the eating. It's a whole Megillah. I digress. What were we just talking about? Kilimanjaro Marathon is number three. Number four. The Berlin Marathon just a year ago. I didn't finish it. I quit. The reason I have that at number four and not number one, I'll never forget quitting the Berlin Marathon. I'll never forget walking off the course and walking onto the subway like Rosa Dam Ruiz going back to the hotel and lying down like a complete failure. But here's the thing. The reason I remember it is that from that failure, success was born. I knew what I had done wrong for Berlin. I didn't respect the starting line. I didn't respect the work that you needed to do. I didn't earn that starting line. I didn't earn that finish line. And my mind said to me during the race, who are you? This is not what you've ever done. When that weakness came to me, it washed over me like an ice bucket being thrown over me in a non-ALS challenge. And it felt like razors and knives on my skin. And I remember thinking to myself, I don't want to feel this again. Do whatever you have to do to never feel it. Don't forget how this feels. Don't ever feel this again. I'm thankful to the Berlin Marathon for giving me a frame of reference that I had long since forgotten through so many successes 
of doing races. And I'm back, baby. That's number four. Let me give you number five. A little out of the way, a little nutty. My fifth most memorable marathon. Antarctica. I did seven marathons in seven days on seven continents. You hear Lebetard say it because he can't believe it. He can't understand it. There's only a couple hundred of us in the world who've ever done it. Raised a million bucks for charity, put together a team of people, and we did it. The first marathon, obviously, yes, it's a continent, was Antarctica. Running around a landing strip made of ice, four laps of 6.3 miles, whatever it was, 24, 25, two, add another mile, times 4.25, 6.45, whatever it is. Believe me, it was 26.2, had the watch, had the measurement. I remember taking stock, because it was only marathon one, unbelievable nerves, unbelievable preparation, taking stock that I was on the continent of Antarctica, running a marathon, and I was so present. And I had this feeling inside me of being that present in a way that I normally am not. What's next? What's next? I'm good. I got it. What's next? I live like that so much. And the problem with living like that is you end up not being where you are at that moment. And something weird happened to me on Antarctica that very cold day is I looked around and I took it in. I was on Ant frickin' Arctica in running shoes with a medal around my neck, surrounded by Russians who Putin had put in a place where they would never see women or good food for a year or two at a time. God, we had to protect the girls and women on that trip. I said to myself, David, this is how that feels. This is how it feels to be present in that moment. Carry that through. Evolve with that. And I have. I appreciate that question. Those are my top five marathons. That's the mailbag for today. We'll be back with another episode of Nothing Personal pretty soon. I can't remember when, but it'll be soon. It's just business. Unless you're running marathons and having all these unbelievable epiphanies about yourself. In which case, nah, this is nothing personal. Before Shopify, were you wondering, where are my sales at? Now you're selling with Shopify, the global commerce platform supercharging your selling. You have no problem selling online, in person, on social media, and beyond. Gary, easy on the cha-ching. <clears throat> oh, sorry, but my Shopify sales are through the roof. Start selling with Shopify today and discover how millions of businesses around the world use Shopify to ignite their selling. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash listen. Shopify.com slash listen. 